Welcome to Code Grays, an episode-by-episode recap of Grey's Anatomy. I'm Teresa Rosado. And I'm Megan Totsky. And join us for Season 2, Episode 13, Begin the Begin. An R.E.M. song. Yeah, there's a lot of R.E.M. songs in these titles. Is there? I don't know. I feel like there is. Maybe I'm getting it confused <laughs> with OAR. Like R.E.M. titles. <laughs> <laughs> Do you like R.E.M.? No. I tried to get into R.E.M. when I was in high school because I read an interview with Tom York that said um, R.E.M. was his favorite band and Michael Stipe was his hero. And I and I hate R.E.M. Yeah, <laughs> I'm I just really like... sorry, Tom York. Um, but I don't like them. I don't either. <laughs> I do not I either. <laughs> I appreciate that you tried. I didn't try. I've heard like yeah. six REM songs ever, and I was like, oh, nope. Whiny. Had a whiny sound. Yeah, and just, yeah, not into it. Yeah, not yeah. into it. Let's speak in Let's speak in Like Martin. Okay. This episode, were you into it? <sighs> You know, I gotta say that, like, when this episode started, I was like, holy shit, it's the one with the hermaphrodite teen and Denny and the guy who reads his book. And I was so jazzed. But I think that I, I don't think that I felt as meh as I think that you felt about it. (laughs) But I was a little bit underwhelmed, I will say. Yeah. I think I had a shiny memory of this episode. Yeah, it has a lot of great ingredients. It yeah. didn't really deliver on the drama. It's it's definitely like seeding for the future for sure, yes. which I think is part of the problem. And it's coming off of a really solid mid-season Ugh. finale. I know, and like, it's I a think, New Year's episode. I think Grandma, and we hate New Year's, so yeah, I think Grandma gets got run over by a reindeer is like a really really good episode. It's point. so good, it's, and it's so. a good holiday episode. It's hard to follow. Yeah. It's hard to oh, it is make yeah. up for that exactly. This is the Hangover. Yes. <laughs> okay, who's doing the uh, blah, the blah, blah, blah? The summary. The oh, summary? I don't know. I think it's you. I, I think it's you. <laughs> I think it's you. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's you. I know it's me, but I'm just going to say that I think it's <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah, pretty, pretty taking advantage of my terrible memory. Yep. I see you. <laughs> Good on you. <sighs> okay. <clears throat> All right, let's get this timer going. Three, two, one. Go. All right, so we have a New Year's Eve episode. Our first patient is Bex Singleton, who is a teenager who has is a hermaphrodite. She has hermaphroditism, and George is working with her and ends up telling her parents that, or telling her that she's a hermaphrodite, even though her parents didn't want her to know. We have Denny Duquette, who has cardiomyopathy and is flirting with Izzy and will become a reoccurring character on the show. We have Millar Poskowitz, who ate his own novel and is a writer and gets mercury poisoning and has a sassy wife. And oh, that, stop. And that's it. That's all that happens in this whole episode. <laughs> Nothing else occurred of note. That's it. That's a wrap. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I got the main uh, things. <laughs> you did. That was really good. That was great. Okay. So where, you know, where do we want to start here? I, just kind of a weird episode. I mean, we start with Derek. You liked this. You were attracted to Derek <laughs> oh, for this moment. I'm so and fucking And I have a lot of it. questions. I'm so into it. a lot of follow-up it. questions I'll save for text messaging. But I was like, fuck this guy for bringing a trout into this tiny little trailer and being like, breakfast like i would murder him i'd murder him with the trout i'd beat him to death with the dead trout are you kidding me no way man no way he goes out fishing before his day job as a neurosurgeon 
catches a trout and offers to make grilled fish for breakfast. All right. Ew. And you know what? Everybody's bitching about how small this trailer is. If you pause any of the scenes inside this trailer, Derek is like a six foot tall man and he's standing. This trailer has like eight foot ceilings. Okay. And it's that's like misleading. <laughs> that's because it's a set trailer because they have to yeah. fit the cameras in. I know. And I'm just saying Illusion that Addison's shattered. a little bit whiny about it. And she freaks out over a trout. And I just think that. Again, all this is doing, the purpose of the scene is to show how mismatched they are and how, you know, <laughs> that their chemistry is terrible. And I love that I he could does not that. even smell fish before probably four o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> That's probably like my fish hour would be 4 p.m. <laughs> so. I'm just saying, I think it's impressive and charming. <laughs> Let's talk about some of our patients. Uh, should, should we talk about, should we dig into Bex here or should we talk about Ellis real quick? Let's, I, I mean, the thing with Ellis is like, we're setting up something to happen with Ellis eventually. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of. You know, it, it opens with Meredith visiting Ellis and you can tell that we're sort of setting, nothing, nothing super major happens in this particular episode with Ellis. The one thing that I think is worth talking about for a hot second is that the chief goes to visit Ellis. And I don't really think that Meredith knows that the chief goes to visit her, but I, that's that's neither here nor there particularly. But the chief asks Derek to go see um, Ellis, sort of asks for a favor, and Derek goes and visits Ellis without Meredith's permission. And the, the point of it is because he's interested, the chief is interested in getting Ellis into a clinical trial for Alzheimer's. And I... I'm absolutely not opposed to that at all, but I think that Derek has a real uh, relationship faux pas here of going to see, you know, he's like trying to convince Addison that he's working at his marriage and he's like publicly said he's not over Meredith and he's, you know, tells Meredith this and tells Addison this and tells anybody who's going to listen to this (laughs) that he's like not over Meredith and she has real trust issues with Derek, obviously. And he goes and visits Ellis without her permission. And this is something that, like, deeply, deeply bothers me. And I don't know if this is... I'd be curious to know if you felt this way, too. But him going to see Ellis without her permission is just really... Man, it just pisses me off. And it just totally... It feels like he's going back on all the promises he made that he was, you know, a better person. And that he, you know, was... I, I don't know. I just think it's so against everything that he's promised that he is in terms of his relationship, not just with Meredith, but with Addison too. You know, it's just a very untrustworthy thing to do in my opinion. And I have a really hard time with that. I think that's a really good point. And one that I hadn't considered was this betrayal of Addison. Cause I definitely thought of it as like, how could you do this to Meredith? Like, how dare you after every, all the shit you've pulled with this woman, like how dare you invade sort of her personal life in this way. Uh, But you're right that it's equally egregious what he's done to Addison after, after doing some, you know, some honestly good work in communicating where he's at right now. Like I give him a lot of credit for saying to Addison, you know, for finally coming clean and, and admitting to his feelings um, for Meredith as as more than just a fling. Like, I think that was really important for him and it was really important for their relationship. Yeah. And this really negates so much of that work because, you know, it's it absolutely is overstepping. And um, 
and and you have to think that he knows that he's shown self-awareness in this other department as far as working on his marriage goes so Mm -hmm. so you have to assume that he's he's self-aware enough to know that this isn't okay yes yes self-aware is something that he has a hard time with yeah so that's and it's it's clear that you know ultimately meredith says all right we can talk about the clinical trial but and nothing really of note otherwise happens with ellis yeah but yeah she just keeps really really awkwardly flirting with richard and it like at one point we have to imagine her as as being loud um (laughs) during sex which is like not something i needed really i didn't really need to to picture that (laughs) nope okay (laughs) next should we talk about bex yeah let's do it so Beck Singleton comes in with what she thinks is or what her family is worried about is a tumor on her ovary. And it's, you know, a few different things unfold, right? She's clearly sort of, um, I don't know, I, I don't want to really want to say a troubled teenager. She clearly has some self-confidence issues. You know, she's sort of what would maybe be described in this in 2006 is like a little emo, right? She's got this like sort of dark look about her. And she's a little bit snarky. And essentially she's been, you know, scars on her wrists from cutting. Right. She cuts herself. Right. So she's, there's clearly some depression going on with her. And George sort of connects with her pretty quickly. And I I was thinking a lot about how George is actually pretty good with Bex's character. Because, and we've seen this with George working with kids before. But George is typically really good at talking and communicating and treating patients who don't have much confidence. <laughs> and I think that it's because he's so non-threatening <laughs> that he can just sort of like, that's sort of his, his sweet spot, right? Is the like people who, <laughs> I don't know. It's just, it's like a little bit pathetic to watch. <laughs> anyway, it turns out that after an ultrasound that they see that Bex does her, this tumor is pressing against a testis. So she is a hermaphrodite, right? So she's her internal, she has both male and female internal sex organs, but only undescended testes. Right, right. So um, fully presenting fully female in terms of external genitalia, which is obviously really tough. She's a 13, maybe 14 year old kid who's having a tough time at school. She's, you know, very flat chested, which she's self-conscious about. She has no boyfriend. She has sort of a masculine look about her, I would say. And just, just, you know, having a rough time with high school. And then, of course, they, they realize that she um, has hermaphrodit- hermaphroditism. And her parents don't want to tell her. <laughs> her parents are just, their line is like, all she's ever wanted her whole life is to be normal. And I just want to be like, okay. Like, clearly, this is the only 13-year-old child you've ever interacted with if you think that that's, like, <laughs> novel and different. You know, like that's such a to me, that's such a shitty reason. So what they want to do is to just say, you know, just remove the testis. Let's just pretend this never happened and we won't tell her. You know, she just wants to be normal. Like, let's just help make her normal. And I just think that she wants to be normal is such a that's such a bullshit reason to to make a decision about your child's gender identity or really anything about your kid. I don't know. It's just it strikes me as particularly shitty. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, what they're what they're asking t- um, Addison to do is perfectly within their rights as parents, which is part of what's so disturbing about this storyline. You know, they want her to operate on when she's operating on Bex. She's she's of course uh, 
removing what because there is actually like something that she has to remove right yeah she's got a tumor she has yeah, a tumor so, that's so there on is a li- actually yeah. a tumor yeah yeah so so she she's gonna go into re- to excise the tumor and they're pretty much like i mean why don't you just pop them testes out while you're <laughs> in there uh which which again is perfectly within their rights as parents to ask and perfectly within Addison's rights to say, no, I won't do that. And I think that's that's the, you know, sort of the heart wrenching part of this is that, you know, like that minors don't have rights to their own bodies. And, yeah. and this is like a prime and tragic example of how they don't. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's an excellent example of it. I think that say what you will about the acting or about the storyline or, you know, the sort of the scenario in general. But I I do think that, Oh, I will. (laughs) There is a lot of sort of rich conversations going on between the parents and the doctor and the patient herself. And ultimately what George does is, you know, they say, Addison says, I won't, I won't perform the surgery, but if you don't want me to tell her, then you can tell her in your own time. And they're sort of like, okay, whatever. And then George tells her. And what, Initially, I I kind of have a hard time with this because I think that he really is not, you know, he's acting directly against the parents' wishes in this scene. Yeah. But I think it's a powerful scene because you have Bex who's sitting there in her hospital bed and she's 14 or whatever. And she's saying, what's wrong with me? You know, why isn't anybody telling me what's wrong with me? And everybody's kind of staring at each other like, you know, it's like a little bit of a game of chicken to figure out who's going to say what. And she says somebody please tell me what's wrong with my body. And I think that that line, like, I don't know, like that just really, I, I almost forgive what George does. You know, it's morally very questionable what he does. But I think in that moment when she's begging somebody, like just straight up pleading for somebody to tell her what's wrong with her own fucking body, he did the right thing. You know what I mean? Like, I just think that, like you said, it's it's sort of, by law, they're allowed to do what they want to do. And, you know, everybody's sort of acting within the law, which is flawed. But her, her that line when she says, like, I don't know, I guess I just have a really hard time with, or I'm such a huge proponent of bodily autonomy. And that's a moment where she's, like, begging for her bodily autonomy. And George is the only one who's willing to give it to her. And I think that's brave. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's brave I guess I think it's really inappropriate. Like if he had just answered the question, like she, you know, the the girl Bex is like, I'm having a procedure to remove a tumor that's pressing on my ovary, right? To George. And like if he hadn't been dramatic and been like, what, I'm supposed to just lie to her? Then there wouldn't have been all of the tension afterwards where she's like, what's happening to my body? And then the parents have to come out with the fact that she has an undescended testes. So it's kind of like, you know, in that moment, what what would have done less harm in like the legal sense and like in his career sense would have sure. just been to answer yes you know yeah so, yeah so no he that's kind of that's sets very up, true you know he sets up everything that comes after by deciding in that moment that he needs to like take this moral high road which like again I think you or I totally agree with but it's not his job <laughs> yeah I think I think <laughs> like right. it's not his position you know and I think Addison has done a nice job in this episode of shutting down the parents 
and really trying to communicate to them that what they're asking is inappropriate and does their daughter a huge disservice and she won't be a party to it. And so she's done as much as she can as a doctor to sort of guide the parents into thinking of Bex and not just like themselves and how they're going to deal with having an intersex child. Right. And so I think that if if George had trusted her a little bit more, you know, that could have been equally sort of brave and less professionally stupid. Yeah, I think that his line is unnecessarily dramatic, right? Like, I think he's, I think they're sort of pumping drama into what is otherwise kind of a flat episode. Um, I guess, I guess I mean to say that, like, his actions of sort of taking a stand with it is, like, professionally inappropriate, but, like, I think that plea, I don't know, I guess that, like, pleading that she's doing just strikes me, right? Is the, like, yeah. I'm living with a bunch of goddamn liars and, like, someone <laughs> throw me a bone, you yeah. know? And I, I think I that, know. I think that for me, the pleading is sort of undone or undermined by how terrible this kid actress is. <laughs> like, she's just, she's so very bad at acting <laughs> that I should be more moved by her, you know, plea yeah. for bodily autonomy yeah. but i'm actually just like oh my god <laughs> shut up <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's all fine. the life you could inject into that line <laughs> <laughs> oh that's funny <laughs> so yeah i think at the end of the day this was a really this was a bold episode and they well tackled, especially 10 years tackled, ago yeah right this was 2006 uh so, you know, kudos to Grays for, again, being sort of ahead of the curve on on this particular topic. And, and you know, of course, uh, Alex, of course, Bex, uh, you know, eventually sh- she's very excited at the possibility that this means she could be a boy. Right. 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 And, you know, so the the final scene that we see Bex is her is her having her, you know, all of her hair cut off. And so. You know, I think that's that's really powerful uh, in in part because Bex does not speak, um, <laughs> and so can't can't ruin the scene. But you know that we're seeing <laughs> we're seeing a kid recognize gender as a construct and right. then act in opposition to the expectations for her. Yeah. As as regards gender, and that you know, again, two thousand six, like that is that is commendable. That's that's well said. Oh, Bex. Oh, Bex. So, should we talk about the next patient, Mauer? Yeah. Maller. Okay. I so always thought it was Mauer, but I looked it up and they said yeah. it's Maller. Like M A L A R is how the yes. wiki spells it. But yeah. Th- but yeah, but the closed captioning. Says it's Mauer. I always watch on closed captioning. I didn't know that Mauer was a name. No, same. That doesn't seem right. I think the wiki's wrong. Yeah, I think so too. (laughs) So Mauer, Mauer. I'm going to say Mauer. It feels more. Yeah, I'm going to say Mauer too. He's a writer and he comes into the ER because he wrote a novel and he didn't like it. So he ate it. And so they have to surgically remove it. And he's clearly, like, out there. Like, they're really... It's sort of a hyperbole of, like, what it means to be a writer. You know, like, a novelist is just, like, really over the top. But I gotta say, so they have to surgically remove it. And then they realize... Alex realizes... important, Which is important for Alex, because he's having a rough go. Realizes that Maurer has mercury poisoning. 
So he has this good catch. But I got to say that my f- <laughs> my favorite part about this storyline is that Maurer's wife is just like a sassy lady who's just like in the background <laughs> knitting the entire time. She's like, yep, Ada's novel. Like, <laughs> and I just, yep, this is the guy I'm with. Yeah. And she's just like along for the ride with her knitting. And I just, I don't know. She's the best part of the storyline <laughs> to me. <laughs> she really is. I, she's like way too attractive for him. And yeah, he's like a three and a half. And <laughs> yeah. He's nothing. He's nothing special. And it's very confusing that they have each other, that he has anyone specifically. Yeah. I think that I think that my my favorite part of this episode or of this particular storyline is that uh, I learned what an actual bezoar is. <laughs> so so I definitely, you know, I, st- I started reading Harry Potter when I was 11 years old. So <laughs> <laughs> my only my only context for a bezoar was that it's something that can save one's life. If you've accidentally imbibed poison of some kind, like someone will shove a bezoar down your throat and a bezoar comes from like a wolf's stomach or something. And I think that I really thought that bezoars were like, I thought that they were not real. Like I thought that they were totally fictitious and that their only, their only attribute was magical, like that they were a magical property. And so this guy, like, technically what's developed in Maurer's bowel is a bezoar. That's what Alex, that's the word Alex uses uh, to describe it. And I just was like, again, like, anew. I was like, <laughs> oh, that's right. Bezoars are real. <laughs> but they're not from inside of the wolf's stomach. You just don't. Ah, uh, that's right. Okay. It's just like an obstruction. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> So you all can tell that we were really attached to this particular storyline. Really, yeah. Yeah, we didn't. Really deeply invested. Uh, we didn't um, di- divert our attention at all from the storyline yeah. at hand. Yeah. yeah. So maybe let's talk about Denny. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Talk to us a little bit about Denny. So you, you want me to talk about Denny? Yeah, I do. <sighs> this, this fucker. So Denny comes in. <laughs> As played by Jeffrey Dean Morgan, right? So he's famous right now because he plays Negan on The Walking Dead, mm. and everyone hates him because he he murdered like like lots of really great characters that people. <laughs> I don't watch The Walking Dead. Me neither. Uh, but I did for the season premiere. I I saved The Walking Dead tag so that I could watch the internet lose its collective goddamn mind. <laughs> And it was really fun. I highly recommend it. <laughs> um, Good to know. People are way too invested. <laughs> so Jeffrey Dean Morgan plays Denny. He comes into the hospital. He's an old patient of, of Burke's. Uh, he's got a bum heart. I don't really remember. His cardiomyopathy. Ca- cardiomyopathy, right? Yeah, so bacterial his, or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So his heart is bad is, is the point. <laughs> And he needs a new heart because his heart is bad. Uh, And so he's called into the hospital because Burke finds out that there's a heart waiting in like Post Falls, Idaho. So, you know, Bailey and Christina are on a jet to pick it up. And and Denny's finally going to get his heart. And isn't this exciting? And he just uh, he doesn't get the heart because it shows signs of of 
having coronary disease or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he's he's sent away from the hospital without a heart. And he, he goes back on the UNOS waiting list. And over the course of his stay, he flirts a lot with Izzy, our, our very own Isabel Stevens. And really, you know, just tries to ingratiate himself to her, you know, is is asking personal questions like if Alex is her boyfriend and and stuff like that. And you're left with the distinct sense that this is not the last time you're going (laughs) to see Jeffrey Dean Morgan smirking as Denny Duquette. (laughs) And uh, so... I gotta ask you, like, so Denny, if you're if you're not a huge Grey's Anatomy fan, you're probably not listening to this. But is like a a generally sort of beloved character, and people, you know, really sort of jumped on the Denny bandwagon. And Teresa hates <laughs> Denny, so I'm interested in why is it that you like? What do you find so upsetting about him? Either like, you know, not long term with his character sure. in the show, because we'll get yes. into that, but. Is it? I mean, like, what? Is, what is? What turns you off so much from him? Other than the what fact that you don't subjective. think he's physically attractive. <laughs> yes. Okay. So, I. Uh, so, first things first. When I when I initially watched Grey's Anatomy, I think that I liked Denny. You know, I was like in my early twenties or you know my late teens, and I liked Denny. I liked the whole storyline. Uh, and it wasn't really until I got older that I was like. Fuck Denny to get. <laughs> I'm now. So, hold on. I'm gonna pause you because now I'm panicking yeah. that you're gonna ruin Denny for me. <laughs> I know. I probably am. Shit. <laughs> I ruin a lot of media for a lot of people. Uh, you've already kind ruined of my so entire much media academic for me. CV. Okay, yeah. just tell me. <laughs> so I, it's it doesn't all come out in this episode though, right? So you just have to you get to look forward to me eventually ruining Denny mm-hmm. to get for you. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I so first of all, yeah, I don't think he's that attractive. I think his head is really large. <laughs> I like his dimples, but his head is huge. It's huge. It's so big. I he starts off. He comes off really strong right out of the gate, and I am not any storyline that involves a patient uh, crossing the line with a woman doctor or intern or resident immediately at this point in my life, like raises my haunches, you know, like I just get very defensive very quickly because I'm like, I understand that this is a plot point, but it's so inappropriate. I can't imagine being Izzy Stevens and like being assigned to this case and having to wade through like all the bullshit she gets thrown at her every day. So I guess my thing is I don't see what differentiates Denny Duquette from any other asshole patient who hits on Izzy Stevens because she's the tall, blonde, you know, big boobed doctor, you know, like we're supposed to read him as different because he's written as charming. But like in actual point of fact, there's nothing to distinguish this dude from all of the other people we've seen objectify Izzy immediately upon meeting her. And so I find that incredibly frustrating. He also makes some what I would consider distasteful jokes about Izzy getting sent to prison for something and like ending up with a yeah you know, those are fucking inappropriate big yeah. Hildy as as her girlfriend and that becomes like this big thread and then there's like a joke about you know girl on girl and he just is so he's written as so stereotypically like. Um, 
naively macho Mm -hmm. and in 2016 that doesn't read as charming to me anymore like in 2006 maybe but in 2016 like I have the language to to, like pinpoint when when dudes are being gross yeah yeah (laughs) and like I don't get the I don't think they get a pass because they're like cute and don't realize that what they're doing or saying is gross you know oh yeah I think that's 100% true and I think that we see that's my that's my big thing with him no and I think we see a lot of that in Grey's Anatomy across the board in in the early seasons right is this like pretty homophobic pretty like you know patriarchal I don't know there's like a lot of things that really rub me the long and and many of them are sort of one-off one-liners but I think it's like pretty institutional as well in this show in the early seasons of like language that you know we were just sort of accustomed to hearing in 2006 that we do yeah. not find it acceptable. And we, and we frankly don't see much of in the current seasons of Grey's Anatomy. Uh, but it's I, hard I, for me. Oh, sorry. Go on. No, no, that's fine. I think that that's a, I think that that's a really, I think that's a sharp read of Denny that, that it is, it's a character that would be written differently. Like many of the stories that we see, even Bex's case, right. Would be written differently today than it was 10 years ago. Yeah. It's, I was just going to say that it's hard for me, especially in an episode that foregrounds the Beck's case. Yeah. Because I'm like, point. on the one hand, you're doing something hugely progressive for 2006. Mm-hmm. And then on the other hand, like in the very same breath, you're doing something so regressive with the character of Denny. And he yeah. doesn't, you know, it's not a huge spoiler to say that, like, this is pretty much just how Denny is and is going to be. Um, yeah. And so I think that the way they write his manhood is frustrating to me in a way that like Burke and Derek don't frustrate me because they seem to me much more like modern depictions of like flawed men in that like they're sensitive and they talk about their feelings and they they um, they have a sense of like their time and place that Denny doesn't for me like as frustrated as I get yeah see but as frustrated as I get with Burke like I think that Burke is just like a self-centered dick like I I think that he has a certain awareness of like what it is he's doing and like that might make Burke worse right (laughs) right but like Denny's written as just so like unaware and just like you know he just comes into being yeah yeah you know, yeah, Ugh. he does nothing for me. Yeah. And it doesn't help that like Izzy, you know, going down the line again, like th- these aren't huge spoilers, but makes just poor choices that are specifically because of Denny Duquette. And I don't so I don't I also don't like um, what the writing of Denny means for the writing of Izzy, a character that I'm thus far, you know, like season two is a good season for Izzy. And I, I like yeah. what's happened with her, with her arc. So yeah. I, I don't like that this sort of, this derails her. Yeah. yeah. And I think, I think that that's true. And I do think that Izzy's been on sort of an upward swing in a lot of ways. But I also think that the things that she, the decisions that she makes surrounding Denny, and we'll obviously get further into this as season two progresses, but the deci- decisions that she makes around Denny, you know, they have done a lot of building up to these things, right? That she does yes. get too close to patients, that she does, you know, like, yes, he is the one who initially, like, pushes the boundaries of doctor-patient relationship, but, like, that's that's not new news for our friend Izzy, yeah, right? This like, isn't she, out of nowhere. It's not Christina. No, she, like, <laughs> exactly. She, like, happily sits in that gray area, right? And I think that, 
like, yeah, he does come in and starts complimenting her and asking her inappropriate questions. And like, you know, initially, like from the first moment is flirting with his eyes with her and, and then, you know, takes it further and further. And she like, she just like eats it up from square one, right? Like she obviously makes, you know, more serious decisions later on with Denny, but like that, you know, she's flawed from the first square with him as well, you know? And it's like, yeah, he's sort of this cocky guy which we know that she's into because she's been into Karev and that's sort of her type, right? But he's also not an asshole, right? Like, he's a little bit of a combination of, like, George, Derek, and Alex and, like, maybe their worst <laughs> qualities. But, like, you yeah. know, in sort yeah, but in sort of this, like, I'm charming and good-looking to many people. Um, but also, like, you know, trying to just woo her. And she's just, she, like, laps it up like it's her first drink of water in a month. Yeah. And so I think that, like, yeah, some of the things that he says are inappropriate, but, like, she's the doctor, and she just, like, plays into all of his, you know, like, she's just so taken with him so immediately. I think that their their chemistry, one of the things that this show does really well is shows natural chemistry between patients, or between in relationships, and I think that that's what's so successful about watching Derek and Addison together, is that it's, like, so repulsive to watch them try to either kiss or interact or communicate, that, like, it's so polar opposite of everything else we see in this show, right? The natural yeah. ke- sexual chemistry between Burke and Yang, right? The chemistry between Derek and Meredith we see so naturally, right? And I think that Denny and, and Izzy are no different, that we see that spark in them from square one, right? And I think that that's a hard thing to hate, right? As a viewer, it's a hard thing to look and say like, oh yeah, I, I'm not rooting for you. You know, that she is... And I think that there's something to be said for that like, she's this accomplished doctor, surgeon... And he's this sort of, like, guy who clearly wants to be, like you said, this sort of, like, macho dude. But he's in a sickbed wearing a gown, you know? And that, like, it's her job to, like, help save him. And he needs her to do that. And I think that that's, like, a... That sort of role reversal, I think, is, like, not an anecdote at all. Anecdote at all to the offensive things that he's saying. But I think that that maybe does play a role in terms of that relationship. Yeah. I think all of that's very true. And as it's possible, too, that, like, some of my frustration with the Denny character comes from, like, from, like you said, Izzy being flawed right off the bat. In that, yeah. like, I wanted her to have learned from Alex, right? Yeah. I want her to make different choices going forward. And instead, she's going to make a very similar choice to the one that just burned her. And, you know, I you're you're right that that Denny is sort of the anti Alex in that he's kind to Izzy right off the bat. And he doesn't hide that he thinks she's beautiful or that, you know, he's he's attracted to her or, or, you know, all of these all of these things. He doesn't he doesn't hide those things or try and. um and, you know, pretend that they're not there in the way that Alex does because of his own internalized issues with, like, masculinity and what that should mean. Yeah. But he's still, he still to me is, like, so Alex in, in so many other respects. And I'm just like, ah, like, really? Like, no change here? Like, you were so grown up in how you dealt with what happened with Alex that I wanted you... To, to grow make a up, different <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. You know, but of course that would not make for a very good show. That's like, true. And Izzy true. never made another mistake in starting a relationship again. Again, <laughs> boring. 
Yeah. I'm excited. But, I think that, you know, the, there's, the, there's way more to say about it. Yes. Uh, and there will Denny be. We'll, we'll get more into it. And I do think that the introduction of Denny Duquette on the heels of this excellent sort of mid-season finale of Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer, but um, that we're on uh, the second half of season two is quite dramatic. And I love it. Like, I think that it's, um, I'm really looking forward to some of the, the things coming down the pipeline as introduced by this episode. Yeah. I mean, to a lot of people, like, Denny Duquette was such a good storyline that, like, it broke Grey's. Yeah. Like, for, for many people, Grey's Anatomy yes. sort of began and ended with the storyline. Yes. So, like, it's a good, you know, I can yes. I can say that it is a great fucking storyline. Yes. But he specifically is not my favorite. <laughs> yeah. Hate the players, don't hate the game. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, what do we What do we have left? I guess just Bert, Christina. Do you have anything that you like? No. Want to get just, off like, your I don't even want to like give them said. any more fucking airspace. I just Burke is once again bullying <laughs> Yang into answers to personal questions at inappropriate times, and I just like I don't know. Punishes so, her in the operating room yeah. again. And, yeah. Like, yeah, takes it out on her fucking career. Like, I really I love, um, I really love, though, I will say this without talking much about Burke. I love Yang's conversation with Bailey on the plane. Yes. It's a great conversation. It's so important. You can see how important it is to Yang, let alone to, like, real women everywhere who need an older, you know, a somewhat older woman that they look up to to tell them, like, taking a pause in your life is, you know, in your personal life is, is okay yeah. so that you can move forward in your professional life, which is essentially what that whole conversation is about, you know, because Yang is like, I was going to abort that baby. Like, that was my plan before I miscarried. And Bailey has just no judgment about that whatsoever. Yep. It's you know? great. Yes. Yeah, that is really true. In fact, I think that I would go back. I think that as we get into the bits here, I would say that I didn't I didn't really have a particularly potent line of the week. And I was thinking about whether or not there was any good monologues in this particular episode. And I will, in fact, go back and say that my that would be my my pick of the week is, is sort of their conversation on the airplane. I think I would retroactively join you. Yeah. So with that said, let's get into our let's bits. do the bits. Well, I guess we can start with line. Well, I don't know what I was going to say. All right. Song of the week. I had I had nothing. Not Every time I thought that I heard, a, I was like, oh, I have to listen for song of the week. It would just be like musical interludes or instrumental interludes. And I was like, okay, I'll try and try again in five minutes. So I had nothing. I cheated a little bit because I, you know, I usually like skim the wiki page before I watch the episode or during. So I knew that Slow Runner was featured in this episode. So yeah. I was listening for that song. Okay. Um, but I love Break Your Mama's Back by Slow Runner. It's a, it's a really, really good song. Someone put it on a mix for me in high school. And I just like, I've loved it ever since. And every time it shows up in my shuffle, because like, it's never a song that I think to listen to. I just kind of forget it exists. And then it comes up on my shuffle and I'm like, ah, yeah, yeah, good track, man. Uh, Death Tally, I had one for the guy who died, who was going to give his heart to Denny and then didn't because it was diseased maybe? yeah 
Yeah. Side one. So great, dude. You didn't even, right. like, you were useless even in death. Congratulations. <laughs> Burn! <laughs> Post Falls, Idaho. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Yeah. That was our only death this week, though. Mm-hmm. Pretty, mm-hmm. pretty death-free episode. What did you think about 007? I couldn't really pinpoint. It's hard. <laughs> I couldn't really pinpoint somebody as, who was, like, a really shitty doctor. I know. You were like... You were like, everyone kind of did their jobs. Yeah. I cheated on this one (laughs) because we're not supposed to think beyond the episode that we're watching. And that's just really hard when you're in a clear story arc like the one that we have just entered. So I said Bailey because she's the one who initially (laughs) assigns Izzy to Denny Duquette's case. (laughs) That's a cheater 007. And she should have known. Oh, come on. She should have known. She (laughs) should have known. That was a Christina case, goddammit. But Christina was over her hours. She couldn't have done it. Ugh. Ugh. Terrible. So, Bailey, 007. I know. Uh, Crev of the Week. I gave Karev of the Week to Derek for going to see Ellis before talking to either Meredith or his wife. <laughs> mm, mm, that's fair. <laughs> so I think that's a real dick move. <laughs> Derek continues yeah. to be the federal Karev of the Week. <laughs> yes. Federal Karev. Which... Yeah. 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 How about you? Uh, I said Burke mm. in his ongoing quest to be yeah. the shittiest boyfriend of all time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, I mean, Burke and Derek are pretty interchangeable at this point for me in terms of their yeah. shittiness. So. Yeah. 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 Yes. What about Chief Resident? You know, I had <laughs> I had a couple fleeting thoughts about Chief Resident. Um, I thought that, jo- I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm rethinking sort of the drama that he pumped into the situation. But George's bravery with Bex in terms of trying to, like, give her some answers that nobody else was willing to. I thought he did that was, like, what I liked about that. Aside from the dramatic way that he went about his actions, um, I think that that was a patient advocacy moment that he had. Um, So I would consider George, it's a (laughs) three-part, George for being an advocate for his patient, Karev for his good catch, right? Way to go, Karev. Got his Mm -hmm. mercury poison thing. Attaboy. And then um, Addison for keeping it really real with the parents, right? They like, yeah. she just like, like you said, she was sort of even keel. She did everything that she could. She was, su- unlike George, was super professional, super straightforward, very honest from the start all the way through to the end. Um, and, and even in the wake of George's drama um, filled, you know, exploits, Addison still really kept her shit together like she always does. So I thought all three of them did, did a nice job in their own way. Yeah, I um, I would pretty much agree. I said Karev, but I agree with everything you just said. So. Yeah, yeah. Karev is <laughs> like, I mean, chief resident wise on like the basic premise. I don't know. Chief, res- I think Alex or Addison probably. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. Alex or Addison. But yeah, yeah. yeah a lot yeah, of, yeah. Yeah, our directors, our interns did a lot of good things. And, they did. and the residents did a lot of good things too. This mm-hmm, episode, so. mm-hmm, good mm-hmm. job, guys. Yeah. Way <laughs> to not fuck it up. <laughs> <laughs> so line of the week then. Yeah, <laughs> I just love Malar's wife, so I, or Maurer's wife, so I was, like, thinking about that a little bit, and she has a couple, like, good zingers that I liked, but I think that for overall messaging, I think that the conversation between Bailey and Yang, which is sort of an unexpected pair in some ways. Oh, is, yeah. You know, is, is, I, I think that that's really, is, was quite powerful. I think that was, uh, I appreciated you pointing that out. I thought about it. Not keeping it. You did. My husband and I, we 
tried for years, but still, when that stick turned blue, well, you can't work the way we work. You can't want the kind of careers that we want and not take pause. I took pause. You paused? I paused. I paused a very long time. You just have to know. And when you don't know, then no one can fault you for it. You do what you can. When you can. Why you can. When you can't, you can't. So medical fact of the week. <laughs> I, have I thought there were kind of two ways that we could go through with this, but yeah, what, are you, tell what me. were you thinking? No, tell me. I was going to give our listeners some homework. <laughs> we could also talk a little bit about um, sex assignment and reassignment at birth and in infancy, because that's also an interesting topic. And then there was yours, which is also valid. All of my knowledge of intersex children has to, <laughs> is, is founded in Middlesex. <laughs> So. A great book, though. <laughs> it's so good. It is it's, good. It is good. It's a great book. So, yeah, so I think I think listener homework is to is to check out Middlesex. It's really good. Um, I want to give just like a brief thing on on what I meant by sex assignment and reassignment at okay. birth. Okay. So okay. So basically, as I was as I was watching the Bex thing, you know, we talked previously about how um, it's perfectly within the parents' rights to to decide, you know, whether they remove the testes or not in their child because she's a mine, you know, Bex is a minor, and et cetera, et cetera. But what I wanted to just very quickly comment on is that this is not at all an uncommon an uncommon thing. It's um, something like uh, one in 20,000 infants are born with what we would describe as ambiguous sex organs. So basically, when a baby is born, the doctor in the in the room gets to decide, you know, looks at the baby and says whether it's a girl or a boy. But there are like there are sort of guidelines for making that determination. You know, like the the penis is going to be a certain like, like the clitoris is is only going to be so large, like those kinds of those kinds of things. So this is according to a BuzzFeed article, which, you know, I understand that BuzzFeed is not the New York Times, but this checks out with other articles that I just kind of skimmed yeah. over. Um, this was something that first came to my attention in college in a sociolinguistics course of all things. So roughly one in every 2,000 babies in the U.S. are born, actually. I'm sorry. Wow. 20,000. 2,000 with a range of traits that fall somewhere along the wide spectrum between male and female. Um, some doctors argue that the number of these so-called intersex babies Babies is even higher, as many as one in 100. And so in 2012, surgeons at U.S. hospitals performed various intersex procedures at least 2,991 times on children under 18 years of age. Oh, my God. And 1,759 of those surgeries were on children younger than five. So basically, if a doctor determines that a child has an ambiguous sex organ, they can make the call. And they can make the call without parental consent, for instance, to snip, mm-hmm. to in other in 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 some way surgically alter the appearance of an external sexual organ if they feel that it will um, allow the child to better adjust 
um, to our current socialization of children as boy or girl. And so this is this is not an uncommon thing. Like this is this is a very it's a common practice that, you know, it, it happens all the time. Like I said, sometimes with parental consent um, and sometimes not. It's just yeah. the doctor's determination of male or female. And I, I you know, this is incredibly problematic right like uh, that you you are making this decision for a child who later on in life you know could like Bex feel a certain way identify a certain way in in terms of gender and little do they know that like biologically things could have turned out very differently for them right. in terms of in terms of that gender expression. So it's a really it's a really fascinating topic. I would I would highly encourage listeners to to check it out, to do some reading. Um, yeah. You know, Middlesex is a great book. It's it's not um, it's not perfect by any means. No. And, and so I want to be like the first person to say that Middlesex was written a while ago is it was written by a cis male author i find it to be an incredibly moving work but i am i am you know a cis a cis woman so just to just to really own sort of that that privilege in in my own response to middle sex but it's really this topic is really interesting in in the way that we um as Judith Butler would say, like do <laughs> violence oh, yeah. to children <laughs> by assigning gender um, in in the literal surgical sense, um, but also just you know, of course, sociologically, just the actual proclamation of it's a girl, it's a boy. When when that kind of self awareness does not um, develop until around two two and a half years of age, right? right? So why why are we even bothering with that sort of thing um yeah. which might be too radical for some and 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 that's fair but i think that this issue of um performing medical interventions on um you know children with ambiguous quote-unquote ambiguous sex organs i think we can all agree on as as being you know sort of beyond the pale whether parents are included or not because yeah obviously yes. babies can't consent to that <laughs> and that's, and, and it's as, a pretty I huge choice <laughs> at the very very minimum that like at the very least, I should say that it's much more common than I think people think. All right, that's, so that's all we have. Show. We're it's, burnt out. That's all we, we got. We are burnt out. And, well, it's, I guess by the time you all are listening to this, it will be 2017 and 2016 will be behind us all. Yeah. Is it good? Is it good over there? Tell us. Yeah. Please let send us, us know. Send us an email. <laughs> yeah. Tweet at us. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You can find us in all the usual pl- places. We're on Twitter at code underscore grays, code grays at gmail.com, on Tumblr, code hyphen grays.tumblr.com. And you can listen to us on iTunes, leave us a review, start the new year off right, make it five stars. Uh, Podbean, of course, our host, Acast, and Stitcher. Thanks so much, guys. Have a good week. Change your name.